As uh, Pastor Jamie already mentioned, the format of the message is a little different this morning. Um, but this is really, it's not just the story of the Bible, it's the story of our faith, the story of our reason for existence, the story of God, really, and our relationship to Him. So let's pray one more time before the story is told. today, Lord, your people, the church that you promised to build. Thank you for bringing us here together to worship you uh, as a body of brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that you would use me this next uh, little bit as your mouthpiece, God, that that, uh, the attention would not be on me, the attention would be on the truth of your word and the truth of your story that you are weaving throughout all of history as the great author, Lord, the one who sees all and is controlling all. I pray that you would bless our hearts this morning and that you would be glorified in the time to come. In your name, amen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not a bunch of random processes not a bunch of accidents, and not just one big spontaneous combustion. God created the heavens and the earth. In six days, he created all that we see, all that we can smell, all that we can touch, all that we can experience. God created it in six days. And he created it simply by speaking. On the first day, God said, Let there be light! was light. And creation continued in this manner. But on the sixth day, God said, let us make man in our image. And so he reached down and formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into him the breath of life. And God called the first man Adam. Now Adam walked around God's creation and went naming everything that he saw. And whenever Adam named it, therefore it was named. But as Adam walked around, he looked and said, The animals have two of their kind and everything else has two of its kind, but but there is no one for me, O Lord. And so God saw that it was not good for the man to be alone. And so he put Adam to sleep. And took out of him a rib, and fashioned from this rib the first woman, who Adam named Eve, meaning the mother of all things. And when Adam awoke, he looked, and he saw his wife for the first time, and he said, Behold, now this is bone of my bone, and flesh of my flesh. And so the human race was created with joy. Now Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God in that garden. They were able to walk among the things that God had created and to walk personally with God and see God face to face and fellowship with Him with nothing else in the way. And they were naked in this garden and they were unashamed and had perfect fellowship with God. 
But God gave them one rule, one commandment. He said, you can have all of the fruit that you see in this garden. It is all yours to eat. Except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the midst of the garden. Therefore, of it you shall not eat. For you will surely die. And so Adam and Eve went about their way, went about their life, fellowshipping with God. But one day, Satan, the eternal enemy of God, who sought nothing else than to ruin God's creation, took the form of a serpent. And while Adam and Eve were walking, he approached Eve. And he said, Has God surely said to you that if you eat of that fruit that you will die? She said, Yes. Yes, God has given us everything in this garden to eat except for that fruit. God told us that if we eat it, then surely we will die. (laughs) You will not surely die. God simply knows that if you eat of that fruit, you will become like Him. You will know the knowledge of good and evil. You will know right and wrong. Your eyes will be opened and you will become like God. And He is afraid. (coughs) Look at the fruit. See that it is good. Go. Taste. Eve looked upon the fruit and she saw that, that it was pleasant to the eyes and that it was like to make one wise and, and so she, she took it and she ate. And she gave to Adam, her husband, also and he ate. And immediately their eyes were opened and yes, they knew the knowledge of good and evil but it is something that they were never intended to know. Their eyes were opened and they looked and they were naked and they were ashamed. And they knew the gravity of the sin that they had done, the very first sin. And so they found some fig leaves and they made for themselves garments and they hid from the presence of God. God came as he did every day to fellowship with his creation. But he could not find them. God, of course, was omnipotent and knew exactly what had created, what had happened. Yet he gave his creation an opportunity to explain. He said, where are you? And Adam and his shame cried out, I I hid myself, O Lord. I was naked and ashamed and I hid myself from you. And the Lord said, who told you? that you were naked. Did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Adam, quick to defend himself, said, it it was not me, God. It it was the woman that you gave me. She took and she gave to me and then I ate. (laughs) And God turned to Eve and said, what have you done? And Eve said, Lord, no, it it wasn't me. It it was the serpent. He deceived me. He, He deceived me and tricked me and I ate. And God looked at the serpent and said, For what you have done, 
on your belly will you go. Cursed will you be. And I will put enmity between the woman's seed and between your seed. You will bruise his heel, yes, but he will crush your head. And this was not just a promise of a physical competition between a man and a serpent. No. This was the first promise of one to come. For the moment that Adam and Eve committed that first sin, the world was plunged into a fallen state. Sin and pain and anguish and sorrow were all brought into the world on that day. And it would appear that all hope was lost. But God, in His wisdom, promised a way to fix His creation. Because the most tragic thing that broke that day was not the physical world, was not the fact that there was now pain and loss and suffering. The most tragic thing was that the perfect communion between Adam and Eve, between God's creation and God, was broken. So that no more could God and man communicate in perfect harmony. And so God sacrificed a lamb that day and made for Adam and Eve clothes from the skins of that lamb. And told them that they were to do the same as a ritual. Not to actually pay atonement for sins, but to remind them of what they had done. To remind them that they could no longer fellowship with God in an easy and free and hassle-free environment. And so, God promised them that one day he would send one who would finally crush the serpent's head. Crush Satan, who had done his best work to spoil the creation of God. And so for thousands of years, life proceeded this way. And the priesthood was set up. The priesthood of the people of Israel that God called to himself. And the reason for the priesthood was so that they could have somebody go and plead the people's case before God. That they would sacrifice the lambs and the bullocks and the doves based on the family status, that they would make those sacrifices to remind themselves of what they had done and to make amends before God. But no amount of sacrifices could ever be enough. And in this sacrificial system, there was the temple. First the tabernacle and then the temple. And in these buildings, there was a place called the Most Holy of Holies where only the high priest was allowed to go, and only then, once a year. And that high priest was allowed to have communication with God. But only one day out of every year. And if he went into this room at any other time, he was killed instantly. This was the severity of the relationship now between God and his creatures, between the separation from God and the sin that his creation had committed. And there was a curtain that separated the rest of the temple from the most holy of holies. So not only was there a physical barrier between God and his people, but there was also the spiritual barrier that existed that was only surmounted once a year by one man, the high priest chosen by God. And so life continued in this manner for thousands of years. 
And people began to lose hope that their Messiah, their chosen one, the chosen one of God, he who would come and fix creation and restore balance between the creator and the creation, people began to lose hope that he would come. And some began to discount him as a myth. We're on our own. There is no God. There is no Messiah. Until one day, one unassuming night, in a place called Bethlehem, where there were shepherds out in their fields tending their flocks. And all of a sudden they looked and before them was an angel of the Lord, and the glory of God shone round about them and filled the night sky with the glory of heaven. And they were so afraid that they fell prostrate on the ground on their faces in fear. But this angel, this messenger of God, did not come with a message of fear. He came with a message of hope. And he said to them, Do not be afraid, for I come to you bringing good news of great joy. For to you is born this day in the city of David the Messiah, a Savior. Here was the promised one that they had been waiting for for thousands of years. And as the angel said these words, there was a multitude of angels. And the army of the Lord filled the night sky and said, Glory to God in the highest. And peace be to all men. For in this world that was ever in a broken and chaotic state since the fall of Adam and Eve, here was the first genuine message of peace and hope. And so the shepherds ran to the place that the angels had mentioned, and they found him, the Messiah, whose name was Jesus, and who would come to be called Jesus Christ. Christ being the Greek word Christos, the Greek translation of the word Messiah. So as they lived in that Greek-speaking culture, here was born to them Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Chosen One, born of a virgin, placed there by the Holy Spirit, God's plan to restore his relationship with his creation. And so, this child, this God-man, 100% God, fully God, and fully man, began to grow in wisdom and stature. And at the age of 30, he began his earthly ministry, spreading the news to the Jews, to God's people, showing to them signs and preaching to them the good news that he had come to seek and to save the lost. And yet the Jews looked and said, He is not the Messiah. The Messiah is supposed to come and liberate us from everything. From Rome. From from our persecutors. 
You're not the Messiah. And they began to become angry with Jesus. And at every opportunity they had, they sought to tear him down and to ruin the work that he was trying to do. This was once again Satan working through people to bring down the perfect plan of God. But as Jesus ministered, he gathered to himself twelve disciples. And these twelve were with Jesus every day, day in and day out, and they saw the wonder that was Jesus Christ. And their eyes were open to the fact that truly he was the Son of God. Truly he was the Messiah. And they followed him and learned from him everything that they could. But Jesus told them things that they could not understand. Things that there's coming a time that, that I must leave you and complete my Father's work. They did, not, they did not understand. They said, no, Lord, you could never leave us. We will be with you for, forever. We will follow you for years and years. You can't leave. One day, they all met and had what is known to us today as the Last Supper. And Christ gave his last earthly teachings to his disciples. He broke bread with them and he, um, he shared uh, the fruit of the vine with them. And he said that this is my body and this is my blood. Take of these things and remember me. And the disciples were confused. They said, but Lord, you, you haven't yet left. How, why do we need to remember you? And it was at this moment that Judas, one of the twelve, who unknown, who unknowns to the rest of the disciples, got up as he was being at that moment controlled yet again. By Satan. He had made a deal with the priests, with the high priests, the Jews who sought to bring down the Messiah, who was sent to save them. He got up, he took his bag of money, for Judas was the treasurer of the group. He was the holder of the money purse. And he left. And they looked and said, Well, where has Judas gone? And some said, well, if he is, he's the money keeper. I, I'm sure he just went to buy us some more food or, or to buy some supplies for our next journey. Little did they know the weight of the situation that was about to happen. So Christ Jesus got up and said, follow me. And he took them to a garden called Gethsemane. And there met with Judas and a group of the high priest's men and Roman soldiers. And the disciples were confused and said, Lord, what is this? What's going on? And Judas had told the high priest that he would show them who Jesus was and betray him with a kiss, similar to a handshake that we would experience today. A greeting among friends. And so Judas went and said, Lord. 
kissed him on the cheek. And at that moment, the high priest's soldiers went forward and seized Jesus. And Peter, in his frustration, went, No, Lord! No! Grabbed his sword and sliced off the ear of one of the high priest's men. And Jesus said, Stop! This is not what I came to do. And he reached down and he healed the ear of the follower of the high priest. And Peter and the disciples were at a loss as they watched their leader, the Son of God, be taken away. And he was brought before the high priestly council, the Sanhedrin, to be tried for his supposed crimes against the religious order. And the leader of the Sanhedrin looked at him and said, Who are you? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said, You have said it. And the high priest was filled with disgust and sent him away to be tried by Pilate, the Roman ruler over that area, as one who was trying to stir up the people and cause rebellion. And he was led before Pilate. And Pilate looked at him and said, Are you a king? They say that you are a king. And Jesus on his knees looked and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then my followers would rise up and fight. My kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate could not understand the, the peace and the sense of calm that he saw on this figure in front of him. And so he went out to the people who were awaiting the verdict below. The people whom the high priest had begun to stir up into an angry mob against Jesus. This mob who was crying out for blood. He went out on his balcony and said, I have found no fault with this man. He is innocent of the crimes that you have accused him of. Let me punish him and let him on his way. And the people in their angry frenzy said, No! Crucify him! Crucify him! Give us Barabbas! And Barabbas was one who had caused rebellions in the area and who was in jail for murder. And these people, in their anger at the Son of God who had come to save them, would rather a murderer be released and rather see the Son of God crucified. And Pilate tried again and said, But he is innocent! Let me release him! And the crowds were blinded by their anger and their rage and said, Crucify him! And Pilate said, I wash my hands of this. May his blood be on your hands. And he turned them over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. And they took the Son of God, the Chosen One, sent to save the world and to restore the link 
and the fellowship between the Creator and the creation. And they took him, and they beat him, and they whipped him. And he was turned over to the Roman soldiers. Soldiers who, when stationed in the city, turned to criminals and being cruel out of sport, out of boredom. And so here they were turned over a man who claimed to be king. King of the Jews, anyway. But in a Roman soldier's eyes, there is no king but Caesar. And so the captain of this, of this group of soldiers looked and said, They say he is a king. Bring him his royal garments. And they ripped off the clothes that Christ had been beaten in with a cat of nine tails, ripped off the clothes that were caked in blood, threw on him purple robes, gave him a mock scepter made of a reed, and took a, a branch of thorns, with thorns at least two inches long, wrapped it around his head, and pressed it into his skull until the blood dripped down his face. And he was unrecognizable to anyone who knew him. And the picture of their sport was complete. The royal robes, the royal scepter, and the royal crown. And he looked back and said, Hail, King of the Jews! And then they took those royal clothes that they had given him and ripped them off continued to spit at him, pluck out his beard. And they covered him again in the dirty and blood-soaked clothes that they had just ripped off of him, gave him his cross, and sent him to his death. And when Jesus got to the hill, the place of the skull, they laid him down across that wooden symbol of death. They laid one hand on one side, readied the spike, put it across his hand. The soldier readied the mallet. One hand. They laid his other hand across. And they laid his feet together, and with more giant hits and with an even longer spike, they nailed the Son of God, the Messiah, to the cross that day. And they raised up the cross, and they dropped it in a hole, with such force as to shake Christ's body to the core and to jar those fresh nail wounds. And it was at that moment that the Son of God was lifted up upon a cross. And the perfect Son of God who knew no sin all of a sudden felt jealousy. Felt anger, felt lust 
felt malice, felt anguish, felt the sins of the world, of all souls, of all people, of all time, previous and all times to come. He felt the weight of the combined sins of the world fall upon him and felt the Father turn his face from his Son. And he too felt what it was, felt the pain that Adam and Eve felt of, a conne- of the connection of fellowship with God to be broken. And so at that moment, he knew that what he had sent to be finished was complete. But not before he cried with a loud voice as he lifted himself up to try and get the air to yell and cried, My God! My God! Why have you forsaken me? As he felt the communication with his father end and be sad. And with that, Christ then cried, It is finished! And he gave up the ghost. And the work that he was sent to do was accomplished. And the sky became dark, and there was rumbles of thunder. And not only that, but in the temple, on a hill across the valley, that curtain that separated the most holy place from the temple, the curtain that was the physical representation of the separation of God and his people, at the moment that Christ cried, It is finished! That curtain curtain was torn in two! And the separation of God and his creation was no more! Christ had fixed the bond between God and his people. And as that curtain was torn in two, it was the physical representation as if to say that now I am your God and you are my people. And Christ then completed the work that he was sent to do. And Satan cried, He is dead! The Jews cried, He is dead! And the disciples cried, He is dead. For yes, Christ's work was done. But His disciples were left broken. They were left without a man to follow. And though they had seen the things that He had done, and they knew He was the Son of God, they saw His physical body die. Their faith was shaken to the cold. And Christ's body was taken and put in a tomb. But three days later, as some of his followers were going to visit the tomb, they noticed that the stone had been rolled back. And they could not find his body. And they thought, where, who has taken the body of our Lord? And they looked, and there stood two men in bright clothes that said, Why do you look for the living among the dead? For he is not dead. He is risen. And later, on that very same time, as the disciples,
disciples were gathered, some of the followers that had seen this, they ran and they said, He is not in the tomb. He is not there. And they did not want to believe it. But then Christ himself appeared in the room before them. And they were surprised and overjoyed at the same time. And they said, Lord. And he told them one message. He told them to go. Take the good news of what has been accomplished. Take the good news of what I have done. Take it to every tribe and nation and people. And go. And with those words, they saw Christ again ascend into heaven. Left with the task of spreading the good news that he had done for the sins of the world. To spread, to spread the good news that the communication between God and his people was once again whole. That now, no longer did the people need a physical high priest, but that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven to fulfill that high priestly role so that his people could come before God, before the throne of God. And normally the story would end there. That is where most times that we hear the story, that's where it ends. But if we look at the book of Revelation, we realize that the cross and the resurrection was not the end. It was really, if anything, a second beginning. Because ever since that time, Christ has been redeeming souls to his cause, redeeming people for God. And one man was privileged to be taken up and to be shown a vision of the culmination of this story. The Apostle John left and exiled on an island, the last of the apostles, living out his days in exile, was one day greeted by a voice from heaven. And he turned and he looked and it says that he was in the spirit and he was taken and he saw the throne room of Yahweh. The throne room of God. And he looked and there was a throne and the one who sat on the throne was like a precious gem of many different colors. And around his throne was a rainbow as if an emerald. And from the throne came lightnings and rumblings of thunder. And the floor in front of the throne was as a crystal, a sea of glass. Here was the throne of God the Almighty. And the heavenly beasts around the throne said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. But as John looked, he saw that in the hand of this figure was a scroll. And a great angel came and said, Who is worthy to open the scroll? And no one came forward. And John began to weep. 
Because no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to open the scroll. But one of the elders came to John and said, Weep not, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and he has come, and he is worthy to open the scroll. And the beasts of the heavenly creatures, instead of crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, switched their praise and said, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is he to open the scroll. For he has sacrificed himself. He has shed his blood. And he has redeemed a people for himself and for God. And praise Jesus for his worthiness because he has sacrificed himself to redeem the creation, to redeem man, to be a people once again for God. And John witnessed the lamb that was slain, the lion of the tribe of Judah, reach out and take the scroll from the Almighty. And then John was shown an image of what is still to come. The Lamb who was slain will come again, not as one as a sheep led to the slaughter, but as a conquering king, coming to regain his people once and for all from the clutches of Satan. For that is the eternal battle that has been going on throughout this story, from the beginning of all time. Satan has sought nothing else but to take souls, to take people from the, from the, the Almighty. To take people for himself and to rob them of the unparalleled joy of being able to call himself a son of God and to have perfect fellowship with God. Satan has sought for all time for nothing else but to rip people out of the hands of God. And that is why Christ was praised by the heavenly beings. Because he has redeemed those people. He has paid the price that was necessary to redeem them so that they could once and for all become children of God. But John was shown once and for all that Christ will come again. And he was shown a vision of one who was called faithful and true and who rides on a white horse and whose eyes burn with fire and who has crowns and crowns upon his head, who has a name that nobody knows but himself. And the entire Armies of heaven will ride behind him and vanquish Satan once and for all to the lake of fire. And will reclaim his people as the conquering and loving king. And that is the Jesus that we serve. That is the Jesus who we are called to worship. And that is the Jesus who the entire 
biblical narrative revolves around. He who was there at creation, who was present in the garden, walking with the creation, he who was there, who sacrificed himself on a cross so that his creation could once again have fellowship with God, and he who will be there in heaven for all eternity, having perfect fellowship with his redeemed children. And that is the true bliss of heaven. Not the golden streets, not the lack of anguish or pain or sin or suffering or anything that we know in this world to be a taint from that original fall. The lack of those things in heaven is not the ultimate prize. It is not the ultimate happiness and peace. The ultimate prize is to be able to look on that day at He who sacrificed Himself for us and will come again to reclaim this earth once and for all for His kingdom. The true prize of heaven will be to look into His face that not only burned with fire, but burned with love for His people. And to be able to say, Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done. And to be able to cast our cares on him for all eternity and to have perfect fellowship as was intended in the garden all those years ago, to have perfect fellowship with the Son who sacrificed himself and the God who loves us and the Spirit who sustains. To be able to have perfect fellowship with the triune God for all eternity. And that is why our story does not have an end. Because it will go on for everlasting and forevermore. There is no end. Only a final chapter that continues forever. And that is the story of the